We begin this morning a, a series in the book of Nehemiah, and we begin in chapter 1, uh, the conception of a vision, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we read in, in Jesus' name. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for men like Nehemiah, men who had a heart for those whose lives had been broken. For those who are facing great stress and suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would work in us today that desire, uh, like Nehemiah, to be willing to say, Lord, here, here am I. Use me, send me to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many of you ever watch HGTV. Any of you watch that? All right. I, I was assuming there'd be a few hands going up. All these programs on remodeling houses. Any of you watch those? Like uh, Fixer Upper, Flipper Flop, Love It or List It, Property Brothers. It seems like there's a new one coming out almost every month. So if you want to OD on, on uh, remodeling houses, watch, watch HGTV. I like to watch these programs not just to get an idea for... Uh, things we could do in our home, which we found some, some ideas. But I like to watch them because they illustrate 
to me at least, what it means to have vision. You see these houses that are just a mess. Houses that are, you know, uh, really need work. And it's easy to see uh, the, the problem, but then it's not as easy to see the solution. But you've got people that come in and, and they take that house that just really needs some help and have a way of transforming it. And then the end result is just like, wow. Um, to me, that's vision where you can see a, a house like that. That's just a, a, a mess and see what it could be and then get to work and, and fix it. I think that's what Nehemiah did in the book that bears his name. He saw some great needs in Jerusalem. He saw what needed to be done and what it could be. And by the power and promises of God, that wall was built. He did what was needed to fix it. So in the first chapter of Nehemiah, we see what what I would call the conception of God's vision for Nehemiah. We see where it all started. And I would suggest there are three stages, three things we note here about God's vision. First of all, God's vision is conceived in us when we see the need. When it becomes very clear to us that something needs to be done. Right? There's something wrong in this world. There's something wrong around us. And God would want to, to change that. When God gives us His vision for ministry, He causes us to see where things are at right now in light of where He wants them to be. And He gives us a desire, maybe even a burden, for things to be different. I want you to notice how it began with, with Nehemiah. It began, first of all, by, by him asking some questions. He, he meets some who had come from Jerusalem and he, and he asked them. Verse 2, yes, I, he says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the questions that Nehemiah asked, you get a pretty good idea what the Lord was doing in his heart. He was living in Susa. He had a very um, cushy job as cupbearer the king, a man who had, you know, basically anything he wanted, but his heart was in Jerusalem. He was genuinely concerned about the things that are dear to God. And so he asked, How are the people that survived the captivity? What is the city of Jerusalem like? He was concerned about those things that were dear to God. Have you discovered that it's, not, that it's easier not to ask questions like these because it can be uncomfortable to hear the answer? Warren Wiersbe says, Some people prefer not to know what's going on because information might bring obligation. Isn't that true? I'd rather not know because if I know, then I might need to do something. And I really don't want to do something. It's easier to be like... Uh, Sergeant Schultz, Hogan's Heroes. Uh, I know nothing, right? I don't want to know nothing. Because if I know something, I'm going to have to do something about it. So it's just better off if I just, you know, bury my head in the sands and not have to, not have to face it. But, you know, if we are concerned about those things that are dear to God, maybe we need to ask some, some hard questions, huh? Like these, are, are we growing spiritually? Are souls being saved? Are marriages in 
families being strengthened? Are we putting the Lord first in our lives? What's the condition of our congregation? What is the condition of our own hearts? Honest examination. Are we willing to be honest before God? So it started with asking questions. And then the second thing we see with Nehemiah here, he listened to the answers. (laughs) How uh, novel, huh? He actually listened to the answers. Verses 3 and 4, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And verse 4 says, when I heard these words, (laughs) he actually listened, right? I heard these words. And I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah wasn't asking about Jerusalem just to make conversation. We do that sometimes, don't we? What's the first thing you say when you meet someone? Ty, what's the second thing you say? How are you doing? Ever ask that question when you didn't really want to know how they're doing? Do you really want to? It'd be interesting if someone were to respond and say, do you really want to know? Well, not really. I was just saying what I normally say. Well, do we really, do we really want to know? Um, Nehemiah wanted to know. He asked about God's people because he was genuinely concerned and he listened. He really wanted to know, even if the news was not very easy to receive. So do you really want to know? (laughs) Are you willing to listen? Uh, James Banks says his dad was a man of few words. He had hearing damage because of military duty, and so he wore these hearing aids. He said one afternoon when James and his mom were taking or uh, taking a little talking a little longer than he thought necessary, he responded by saying, whenever I want peace and quiet, all I have to do is do this. And he turned off his hearing aids, sat back, closed his uh, folded his hands and and sat there with with kind of a a grin on his face. (laughs) Didn't really want to listen. Thank God that Nehemiah didn't do that. After asking He listened. And when he listened, he saw the need, didn't he? He saw the need. So that's where it starts. God's vision is conceived in us when we, first of all, see the need. And then secondly, God's vision is conceived in us when we see the Lord. When we see the Lord. When Nehemiah heard what was going on in Jerusalem, he didn't say, oh, that's too bad. And then... Merrily went back to the palace and continued in his job there with all of his needs met. His heart was broken for his people. And it caused him, notice verse 4, to turn to the Lord in prayer. When I heard these words, I sat down and notice the, the words he used. He wept and mourned for days and I was fasting Praying before the God of heaven. Now, that's quite a response, isn't it? When I heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, for days I wept. For days I mourned. Fasting and praying. Nehemiah knew that the only way that that wall in Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt was if God was in it. 
because the task was far beyond his ability to perform. Chuck Swindoll calls Nehemiah a leader from the knees up. That's a good way to describe it, right? A leader from the knees up. Because the great need in Jerusalem didn't drive him to despair. It drove him to prayer. It drove him to the Lord. What does Nehemiah teach us? He teaches us that prayer wasn't a last resort. Prayer was his first response. That ought to be the way for us too, right? Prayer ought to be our first response, not our last resort. Try everything else. If all else fails, pray. First thing he did was get down on his knees. I want you to notice how he began his prayer in verse 5. Notice how he describes the Lord. He said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice he he speaks about how God is awesome. The great and awesome God. I kind of wonder if we've abused this word awesome in our culture. Think so? Almost anything is awesome, right? The game was awesome. The food was awesome. The movie was awesome. My three-point shooting was awesome. It kind of was, but not, not, not quite. What does awesome mean? The word awesome is defined as something extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration. There's only one person I know that fits that, def- that definition. Who's that? That's the Lord. <laughs> If anyone fits that definition, it's the Lord. He alone is great and awesome. And I find it interesting that that's the way that Nehemiah begins his prayer. Because the the task that was before him was huge. Great distress in Jerusalem. People were being reproached by their enemies. The wall was broken down. The gates were burned with fire. The kind of God Nehemiah needed was a great and awesome God because the task was huge. And so it started where it needed to begin, praising God for how awesome he is. Warren Wiersbe again asked the question, to what kind of a God do we pray when we lift our prayers to the God of heaven? We pray to a great and awesome God who is worthy of our praise and worship. Then he says, if you are experiencing great affliction and are about to undertake a great work, then you need the great power, great goodness, and great mercy of a great God. (laughs) Isn't that good? Then he asks this question. He says, is the God you worship big enough to handle the challenges that you face? Ponder that. Is the God you worship big enough to handle the challenges that you face? If your view of God is that he is small, then your problems are very large, aren't they? But when you see God as he really is, as the Bible explains him to be, not a God that we make up in our minds, But as the Word of God proclaims Him, when we see God as He really is, 
It puts our problems into perspective, doesn't it? Great and awesome God. The second thing that Nehemiah says about God in this prayer, not only is he awesome, but God is, God is faithful. Verses 8 through 10, you see how he prays there. He says, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. What's he doing? He's reminding the Lord, Lord, this is what you have said in your word. What did God say? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that indeed happened. Babylonian captivity, they were scattered. They were taken to Babylon. The wall was broken down. Gates burned with fire. Temple was destroyed. God did what he said he was going to do. But, verse 9 says, if you return to me, I will gather you from wherever you've been scattered. I will bring you to the place that I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. So what is Nehemiah appealing to? He's appealing to the faithfulness of God. God, this is what you said in your word. It happened just as you said it would. We were unfaithful and we were scattered abroad. But you've also said that if we return to you, you'll bring us back to this land. And so his prayer is not based on something he was dreaming up in his own mind, but based upon the truth of God. His vision for ministry wasn't something that originated in his own mind, but came from God. You know, I've read books about ministry that kind of give you the impression that you come up with a vision, right? What do you want God to do? And then you ask God to bless it. Now, it seems to me uh, that's a little bit backwards, isn't it? It's like asking God to get himself aligned with my will. Here's what I want, Lord. Why don't you just rubber stamp it? You just, you just bless it. Uh, e. Stanley Jones says, If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Then he says, Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. I hope you don't view prayer as you're pulling God to your way, but rather saying, Lord, what is your will? May I be praying consistent with your will. So Nehemiah's vision for his ministry was God-given because it was based on the promise of God. And it was God-empowered because God is a great and awesome God. So first he saw the need. And he brought the need to the Lord and he saw how great God is. And then the third part of that vision, God's vision is conceived in us when we see our part. What's our place? What does God want to do with us in fulfilling His plan? I find it very interesting to notice the way that Nehemiah saw himself. The first way might even be a bit surprising because Nehemiah saw that he was part of the problem. 
that he was part of the problem. And it's interesting because the very common response when things go wrong is to is to look for a scapegoat. Right. Who can I blame for this? Politicians are experts at that, aren't they? Oh, my. It's the previous administration. It's the Democrats. It's Republicans. It's this. It's that. No one wants to claim any responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. And it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to do this because it was about 140 years. Think of that. 140 years since the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. He could have looked back and blamed his ancestors. But he didn't do that. Notice as he pours out his heart to the Lord, he takes personal responsibility. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we... Notice that, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Isn't that interesting? To some people that might seem a bit strange, but this is how... True spiritual leaders in Scripture respond. They don't say it's your fault. They said it's our fault. Not this is your problem. This is our problem. Not you, but we. And I'll give you some examples. Remember Moses? What happened when he was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? Aaron's building a golden calf, right? The people are dancing around it. And Moses comes down and he breaks the Ten Commandments on the ground. But what does he pray in Exodus 34, 9? He said, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Not their sin, but ours. Ezra 9, verse 10. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Daniel, godly man, ended up taken captive. Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Isn't it interesting that all of these leaders identified with the people? They claimed responsibility Together. And so the question we need to are we willing to see that maybe we're part of the problem? It's very easy to point at people out there, isn't it? Our culture, our world, if those people out there would just get their act together. Do you think the church has something to do with the problems in the culture today? I think so. What has the church done over? And I'm talking about the church at large. What? Abandon the truth of Scripture? Don't stand on the Word of God? No wonder we've got problems today. And Nehemiah was willing to say, it's us. It's we. 
And it's not them, it's, it's we. So he saw himself as part of the, the problem. But he also saw that he could be a part of the solution. It's one thing to pray about the needs around us, and we certainly need to do that. But it doesn't end there, does it? It's another thing to say, Lord, use me. Much easier to say, Lord, change this situation than it is to pray, Lord, use me. But that's what Nehemiah did. Look at the end of his prayer, verse 11. He said, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, this king to whom Nehemiah was, was cupbearer. So what's he saying? Nehemiah believed that he needed to be a part of the solution. And his prayer reflected that. He didn't say, Lord, change this situation, or Lord, use someone else. He said, Lord, use me. Use me. Are we willing to pray such a prayer? It wasn't going to be easy for Nehemiah. One author says the king's cupbearer would have to sacrifice the comfort and security of the palace for the rigors and dangers of life in a ruined city. Luxury would be replaced by ruins, prestige by ridicule and slander. Instead of sharing the king's bounties, Nehemiah would personally pay for the upkeep of scores of people who would eat at his table. He would leave behind the ease of the palace and take up the toils of encouraging a beaten people and finishing an almost impossible task. But you see, Nehemiah served an awesome God. A God who was able to meet his every need. And I use the word served purposefully because if you look in his prayer, you will find that Nehemiah used the word servant eight times. In this prayer of seven verses, he uses the word servant eight times, which would suggest what? He's trying to get a point across here, right? He's trying to emphasize that we are to be servants. The Christian life isn't about the Lord serving us. That's what some people want. They, they see the Lord as their servant who is to make life easier for them. And if the Lord calls them to sacrifice, send someone else. Huh? Jill Briscoe wrote a book years ago. Here am I. Send Aaron. <laughs> it's about the way it is sometimes, isn't it? Here am I, Lord, but uh, you can't use me. Send Send someone else. The Christian life is just the opposite. If Jesus is my Lord, then I'm his servant, right? I'm his servant. And Nehemiah got that right. And I noticed very clearly as we close that, that, that Nehemiah shows us that the foundation of our service is the fact that we've been redeemed. Look at verse 10. They are your servants. And your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power 
and by your strong hand. Obviously, Nehemiah is talking about Exodus. When God brought His people out of Egypt, He redeemed them. And because He redeemed them, they belonged to Him. They were His servants. The same is true for us. If you are a believer in Jesus today, you've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. And Paul says that, therefore, glorify God in your body. Give your life in service to Him. And that's what... That's what Nehemiah did with his life, didn't he? He was a redeemed servant of the Lord. And it changed the way he lived. He left the palace of Susa for the ruined city of Jerusalem and gave his life to serve the Lord. I trust you've learned the lesson that Nehemiah learned. If Jesus is your Lord, then you are his servant. So find your place. Where is it that God wants you to serve? Do your part in the kingdom, building the kingdom of God. See the need. See the Lord. And offer yourself to be a part of the solution. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the call that you gave to Nehemiah. He saw himself, Lord, as your servant, whom you had redeemed. And he said in a nutshell, Here, my Lord, send me. May that be our response, O God to what you have done to save us by giving your son Jesus to pay the price for our sin. For we pray in his name. Amen.